Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias, at where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers and movie and TV makers, uh, writers, directors, producers, actors, production designers, uh, sound gurus, video editors, and so composers, and so much more. Uh, Obviously, it's a Monday if you're listening to us on Adrenaline Radio right now, AdrenalineRadio.com right now, um, where you can find us every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. But the rest of the time, 24-7, you can find me in print and online with movie reviews and interviews and so much more at multiple outlets globally and, of course, always on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter, BTL Radio Show, or Movie Shark D, and also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn. We're everywhere on social media platforms as well. Very, uh, very excited about our guest today. Um, hold on to your hats, boys and girls out there. Um, we have Prince Eric himself. From the Little Mermaid Live, Graham Phillips is joining us at the midpoint of the show, along with his brother Parker Phillips, and they're going to talk about their new film, which is nothing like the Little Mermaid people, um, called The Bygone. It is a throwback to the styles of the old of old westerns. It is a stunning film. It is a slow burner, uh, and it really tackles some issues uh, and collateral damage issues that people don't think about that come with things such as these oil pipelines uh, in our middle American uh, and Northwest. So I can't wait to talk to Graham and Parker about this film. It is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and with incredible performances. And, of course, Graham and Parker are co-writers, co-directors, and then Graham stars in the film. So they'll be here at the midpoint. But before then, we're in hot and award season, and I'm very, very thrilled uh, that I had the chance the other week to speak with cinematographer Faydon Papamichael. Faydon, you all know Faydon's work. Nebraska for which he received an Academy Award nomination. Uh, going back to While You Were Sleeping with Sandra Bullock and my pal Bill Pullman. Identity, Monuments Men, The Descendants, America's Sweethearts, 310 to Yuma, uh, even way, way, way back, Patch Adams, that starred Robin Williams early in his film career. Um, Faydon's work is magnificent, and now one of the best of his career, Ford versus Ferrari, the story of, it's basically um, the story of the friendship of Carol Shelby and Ken Miles, uh, and involving the Ford company, motor company, and the Ferrari company, uh, set in Le Mans in France, uh, and across the United States, and it, and it, is this told against the backdrop of Ford trying to overtake Ferrari as being the best race car in the business and to enhance the Ford name. The film boasts 
Academy Award-worthy performances from Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Damon plays Carol Shelby. Christian Bale plays racer Ken Miles. Tracy Letts plays Henry Ford II, and he is phenomenal. Josh Lucas, and of course, John Bernthal, who plays a very young Lee Iacocca. And for most of the baby boomers and older out there, we you will remember the television ads that, to promote the Ford brand and name when Iacocca took over the company. Uh, he was in print ads, TV ads, so to see him as a young man... Uh, played by Bernthal, is a real treat. But the biggest treat, I mean, the great thing about Fadon's work with the lighting and lensing in Ford versus Ferrari is that he gets us up close and personal. Um, and it's not about seeing cars race. If He puts us behind the wheel with camera placement mounted in cars, on the on the hoods of cars, on the sides of cars, and these are actual race cars. They were custom built for the film. They built about 30 of them to the tune of about 100 grand a piece. Um, real race cars, 12 to 15 million, 15 million each. Uh, Ferraris, 25 to 45 million each. So um, it, this is quite something with these cars that, and they, they were traveling at speeds upwards of 100 miles an hour. They didn't go. Uh, put the pedal to the metal as, you know, with engines driving as quickly as in rally races, motor car races, uh, Le Mans Grand Prix, but it was up there. Um, and as you'll hear in this interview, Fadon and I talk about um, using expanded anamorphic lenses with vintage glass um, and, and using wider lenses to get these really great close-ups and shooting low with wide angles to get a sense of speed. And, of course, one thing to keep in mind with the race cars, 40 inches from ground to the top of the car. So sits very, very low. So to get us immersed and in the driver's seat, particularly with Christian Bale as he's driving um, the Ford cars, um, that camera's got to get down low, and which is where your wide, your wider lang angle lenses come into play because it really gives you that sense of speed, and and we feel the cars cornering like they're on rails. We feel the g-force. We have the driver POV. It captures sun flares. It is if it's as if we are in the car. But through the entire film, we never lose sight of the fact that this is, at its heart. The Friendship Between Carol Shelby and Ken Miles. Phenomenal film. It's in theaters this Friday. It is one of the hottest awards contenders out there right now. So now, take a listen to my exclusive interview with cinematographer Fadon Papamichael talking about Ford versus Ferrari. Hi, Fadon. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. You're very punctual. Thank you. <laughs> I've been uh, shooting in Chicago. I'm going to Aaron Sorkin film uh, the trial of the Chicago 7, so we've been doing riots and Chicago cops beating up hippies in the park oh. at night. Yeah. So it's not just a challenging film, it's a mentally challenging one, too. Yes, and but now we start the interior courtroom for the next two weeks, so it'll be able to settle down a bit. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I can't thank you enough for shooting Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, uh, 
thank you. Fade on. <laughs> it was, it was a pleasure for me because I'm a car, a car guy. You know, my family is actually, they were rally drivers in Europe. So my, my uncle, my actually my dad, but he never was that successful. But his brother won a rally Acropolis in 50 and 51 in a Jaguar. XK120, and then he raced Monte Carlo several several times. So, um, you know, and I, I I have a few sports cars. So, for me, it was a a dream. I mean, first of all, fifth movie with Mangle, so we really have our language down. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, Christian Bale, a second film with him, uh, was just obviously that's uh, just pure joy to watch his performance, I mean, especially coming off of Ice and seeing him play a, a Brit again. And, um, it was very close to, Ken Miles is as close to his own personality, you know, he really had fun being a sort of goofy, offbeat, uh, quirky mm-hmm. Brit. And then, uh, you know, my third movie with Matt, uh, also one of the nicest people he can to work with so uh, it was very enjoyable and uh, the whole cast was just fantastic Tracy led obviously and uh, yeah just great yeah no it's uh, from casting all the way down it is an exemplary film and I'm so happy to hear that you love ra- you love racing and race cars <laughs> I, I'm I'm a, a six I'm a, a 50s 60s muscle car and 70s muscle car gal Oh, you are. So I love, I had a 73 Plymouth Satellite with a 484 in it for the longest time. Wow. Uh, And then I helped, uh, when I lived back east in, I used to hang out with all, with guys who were restoring cars all the time. So I knew how to, I mean, I changed out in my car, uh, water pumps, temperature gauges, uh, starters, alternators. Oh, look at you. That's great. And, <laughs> and for years, when I first came out to L.A. and was working in production, I was primarily working with the second unit stunt guys. There's a long tradition of that in Hollywood. I mean, I started with Roger Corman, so before that was Ron Howard. He did Eat My Dust. And, mm-hmm. uh, um Yeah, I remember he had the record for the most setups, and one day he did like 110 setups. I told Mangle that, and he goes, yeah, but, you know, what kind of setups were those? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, We had a great stunt crew, too. Robert Nagel uh, was our coordinator, and then Alan, unfortunately, I'm blanking on his last name, but he's our precision driver, and, you know, in early testing, we realized that... We have to be really close to these cars. I mean, you see it in the movie. We're just like inches away tracking them. Uh, So we did a lot of, you know, fancy rigs initially and then realized, you know, all the old school stuff is actually the best. Just sort of hard mounts on Christian Bale, no vibration isolators, just feeling, you know, I mean, that whole Willow Springs race. I mean... All the stunts that you see, none of it is CG. It's all really mm-hmm. unfolding uh, in for real in the background. So you got close-ups, and you see this Corvette spin out and go in the dirt, and all that's like uh, actually coordinated stunt work, and uh, it was really challenging, but 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 great fun, you know. But it was, yeah, we yeah. tried to do as little green screen as possible. Mm-hmm. The only thing that we did like two days, not even on stage, like in the aircraft hangar just a few very specific close-ups of Christian, you know, when he's on on his last ra- lap. And mm-hmm. 
he decides to wait wait up and you know he 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 considers should I should I conform to this uh, wish and like we'll wait up for the others and then he downshifts and you know, maybe cross the line together but but other than that I mean we really like uh, the Daytona race the Willow Springs race um, and and. Uh, was all uh, also first unit working with second unit and then second unit went 10 days because you know Le Mans is a countryside race mm-hmm. so we needed I mean this shot in California um, but we did send second unit for 10 days to do the countryside roads you know to, to match Le Mans we actually went to Le Mans but that track was not really usable because it's highly secure now and I mean back then it was just you know no barriers and yeah you could just run run wild on it yeah i mean miles on straight was just basically you know i don't know, i think three kilometer or four kilometer stretch of just a tree-lined country road so and then you get to that final hairpin turn the right turn there which is really featured in this film mm-hmm. like who's gonna break later you know so well, yeah it was, it was great and th- this is something that i love um because of the close-ups, you're shooting low um, so that we really get immersed. When you're sitting in your seat watching, you feel, because of the way you are loaded to the ground with the camera, because people forget how low these cars actually sit. Yeah, um, that's so, why it's called GT40, because it's 40 inches off the, off the ground. Yeah, and the so roof the, line. Yeah. So the camera's got to get down there. Yeah, but, the camera was almost scraping the ground, and then, you know, it's also framing in the asphalt and, you know, getting all that sensation of speed. And, and you know, it was, our biggest concern was, of course, to get the cars up to speed. And Robert Nagel kept saying, you know, guys, these are not race cars. These are picture cars because, of course, we, we build over 30 race cars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the real ones are 12 to 15 million. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Ferraris are 25 to 45 million. <laughs> so, so we built 30 cars. Um, they still cost about 100 grand each. And then, you know, the Cobras are, um, those are from Superformance, you know, they make those mm-hmm. cars. Um, but, you know, he said, they're not race cars. These are picture cars. So I, I can't go 200 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, it takes a, a lot more to fine-tune these chassis. It takes different tires. Uh, but uh, we got them pretty, going pretty fast. I mean, I think you get a good sense of the you, speed in it, you know, because in Rush, they actually used original cars, and they came with the owners, and, you know, the owners didn't want to push them so hard. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so they, I know they were struggling with it. And you, now, I mean, looking at it in retrospect, you can see that, you know, they're not going that fast. But, I mean, and of course, we're not Steve McQueen, who on the mall insisted on right. shooting everything at actual race speed. And, but he also caused a, a fatality. And so it was, um, you know, we kind of found the middle ground. But mm-hmm. I think it works. I mean, definitely. And, you know, with Mangas always, I mean, we're not really extra filmmakers, you know. We're, I mean, Mangas always... I, you know, I'm a character director and creating these, um, you know, really solid characters. And and for that, to keep the audience involved in all this racing, I mean, it's it's much more interesting, of course, to, like you said, you know, tell it through the perspective of the 
driver, try to get a sense of what it's like being in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the sort of insanity of it all, like this little machine with this gigantic engine. And, and uh, But, you know, seeing all the action really from the driver's perspective as much as possible. So a lot of POVs out the windshield, uh, you know, I... I and the night race, I decided to give the Ferraris yellow lights. I didn't even research it, but I think it actually turned out to be correct. But mm-hmm. So you can identify them right away at night. Especially during um, the rain. Yeah, during the rain. I mean, that really helped also with the rain and uh, convey some of the speed. And, and of course, you can't set rain towers for like a three-mile stretch. So we, we actually sent, we just went down the road and we sent like this vehicle ahead that was just spraying. And then we would cue the cars. And most of the rain is really just what gets picked up from the other cars, you know, all the spritz and stuff. So uh, that worked out really well, actually. Well, something that I, that I love, I mean, putting us in the driver's seat, because you truly feel, and when, that when they're cornering those cars, it's like the way the camera is, and you're tilting on the track with the car. Yeah. And it you you feel you get the sensation of that car cornering on rails, and it's truly outstanding. And it's something we have never seen before. And it's also something even racing fans, uh, you know, in that day and age, as we also see through archival footage, you know, ABC Wide World of Sports. But all you're getting right. are long lens, wide angle pans. Yeah, of course. I mean, back then they were just panning and. Uh, you know, even now, I mean, I watch Formula One. I mean, you'd never really realize that they're going to, you yeah. know, it has a digital display on the screen that says they're doing 330 kilometers, but... It doesn't you know, feel it. Way, yeah, you got to You don't feel it, yeah. I mean, now they put these onboard GoPro cameras, too, and stuff, and, you know, you, you feel it a bit in the in the POVs, but... Um, but yeah, uh, in order to get the sense of it, you got to really be on the track and be close. And we're in the pursuit vehicle, and you know, we're going around these corners at 90 miles an hour. I mean, I'm trying to pull focus and pull iris and the whole camera crew in there. And, you know, obviously trusting our excellent driver, but it's 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 quite a, a thrill ride. I mean, and it helps the performances because you feel it on the faces, you feel the mm-hmm. vibration, you feel all the interactive light you know you can't really fake that with you know some kind of rig on stage and shaking the car <laughs> yeah you no go. you get some I mean, that, that 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 great scene with tracy let's when when matt takes him oh goes, god let me, let me show you what nine million dollars <laughs> buys you at i mean tracy had no idea i mean he's a great actor but i i mean a lot of that is just we used the first take i mean a lot of that is just you know how did any how did you even fit him in the car i know right oh well, that's... we made a joke out of it he goes oh i just sat on my nuts but they, it was a squeeze and then he literally we sat him in and we had hard mounted cameras to so that front shot and two rakings and we just let him go and we we're watching it on the monitor and looking at his reaction and we <laughs> couldn't believe it i mean we're like oh my god and uh you know, we and they could stop anywhere they wanted, and then they ran the scene. You know, so when he starts crying, I mean, we were like, we had no idea what's gonna happen. Oh my God, it's it I mean, was very much like with Joaquin on stage. You know, walk the line. Walk the we, line. We were just like, get the camera in there and let him. Like, we had no idea what he's gonna do. You know, he. It was always just uh, 
have a camera ready to follow and react. And, and you know, it's very much a similar approach because on Walk the Liner, we also wanted to convey what it's like being Johnny Cash on stage mm-hmm. and, and, you know, have very few shots from the audience perspective. So it's, it's really more getting the audience into the action that way. But something that you do going beyond the racing, because the racing is secondary to the relationship and the friendship between Ken Miles and Carol Shelby. And I love... Well, lo- correct. I mean, we think I of love- it a, a, a friendship movie, a buddy movie, like yeah. in the classic sense, like Butch Cassidy and mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, I, I drew some inspiration from the right stuff because, again, it's these these individuals, these crazy test pilots that mm-hmm. would go out to Edwards Air Force Base and fly these insane machines and put their life on the line every time they went out there and, and then you know they get inducted into NASA and they're dealing with all the rules and the corporate structure and yeah. you know so it's yeah but um, yeah no the friendship and the characters and you know the passion for pursuing what you love and uh, the ultimate sacrifice and that's what the film is about of course you know it needs to have great racing footage but yeah, the, the heart is, is their relationship, and they really had a great chemistry, you know, and um, I think, you know, Matt really held his own in a way a Christian, you know, is Christian and has the more colorful character, but Matt did really great playing a Texan. I mean, mm-hmm. he's from Boston. <laughs> well, yeah. I have to say, what I particularly love is, number one, you keep the two of them as much as possible, you know, on equal footing in the same shot, you know, they, you know, metaphorically, it's spectacular from a dramatic standpoint. And then when you have, and Tracy towers over Matt, we, we all know this, and yet you have some really intense scenes happening, and that power, that power shift isn't there. You've got, uh, through angling, they're essentially eye to eye. And yeah. I thought that was so brilliant because it shows that Shelby never lets Ford get the better of him. Right. And I, the, I just love the way you angled that and shot that. And you, you have numerous moments in the film like that where you really use the angle of the camera. Yeah, we like we like using uh, wider angles and then getting in close and always uh, blocking and composing. You know where you feel, you know, not really isolating the character, but feeling his immediate surrounding and, and how, in the offices of Ford. How uh, you know you have all the players and it's these very composed sort of shots with foreground and background characters mm-hmm. standing. So um, and then you know saving the real real close-ups you know for very you know if you always cover everybody with close-ups then you just become used to it and it's boring. it loses its effectiveness so you know really save them for the key moments you know um but yeah i mean it's, it's great to see the audience reaction in those scenes you know because of course people are into the car stuff but, but we we get you know people screaming out at the screen and laughing and applauding and like mm-hmm. some of these office scenes <laughs> Ford's office I mean it's great you know like, 
pub is like hanging on to every every beat there. So um, yeah, I know at the, yeah, the but, uh, at the four year consideration screening um, that I was just at last week. Uh-huh. Uh, the place erupted into cheers in the scene between Matt Damon and Josh Lucas out yeah. at just before the you know the Tracy Letts in the car scene and right, people right, right, right. were oh, when he locks in yeah. yeah people yeah. were cheering and yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and as Lucas is freaking out within the office I know and it, yeah. and it was a perfect perfect levity uh, yeah. Within the context of the film, and you, I mean, you really lend so beautifully with through the through the windows. Um, you know, you really see, and again, it's that metaphor that comes across through the character study and the character building within the film that Mangold and you are so adept at. Yeah, um, really beautifully done. But now. I love that you went. You went with anamorphic lenses on this. Well, I wanted to shoot. I mean, one of the movies we watched um, was, you know, Grand Prix, of course, and and you know, just that whole cinemascope, uh, Kodak saturated, old school Hollywood look, and also the way, you know, we had technical limitations back then. I mean, when that was shot, so just the simplicity of it, like these close-ups in the car, the POVs, um, you know, that was something I, I try to recreate. Um, you know, not just doing drone shots and fancy wraparounds, just, you know, basic, basic uh, uh, classic coverage. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was... Um, uh, really, the, the atomorphic look. I mean, I wanted large format uh, because I'd shot some stuff on the Lexus 65. I did some additional photography on Greatest Showman and then recently on A Call of the Wild, and that was Alexa 65. But the LF, the large format Alexa, which is slightly smaller sensor, had just come out. And I loved the way the larger format, medium format, large format lenses created also this fall off and this uh, beautiful lack of depth of field but mm-hmm. also just the way it falls off it's it's very unique but I I, I tested spherical lenses and then I looked at anamorphics of the cars and everything you know that set that the pits we, we build and Aquadolce airstrip all that just looked spectacular and anamorphic and it really felt right and also you know there's the flaring is different, and mm-hmm. I really wanted that. And but at the time, there was no anamorphic lens that covered the large sensor. So as I'm there testing at Panavision, there's Dan Sazaki, who's sort of a lens guru over there, and he goes, "Well, I can expand them." And I'm like, "Yes, but can you really expand them?" And we start shooting in like a week. And he always says things, and you know, uh, no one's really done it before, so. We really went into day one with prototype lenses. Wow. He adds an upper glass element and uh, expands the lens to cover the LF. And we had some vignetting issues. It actually has a beautiful natural vignette, uh, which often I, I build into the DI, but I didn't really have to do it on this. And it gave me the combination of the large format fall off and having the bigger sensor, but also maintaining the bending and the vignetting 
of anamorphics on this layer characteristic. So it, it's really a beautiful combo. And uh, I'm doing it right now again. I mean, now it's become, since we did it, it's become really popular. Um, of the 50 sets they have of the T-series anamorphics, like 25 of them have been expanding. Mm -hmm. Expanded, and if you talk to Panavision, maybe it was all about expanding right now. So, um, so we really kind of set a trend with that. And I mean, now I'm using it on Chicago Seven, mm -hmm. and uh, I had a hard time even getting them because everyone is is, is doing that now, you know. So, but um, yeah, mm -hmm. they found some for me since since I started. It, so. Yes, and so. well, they should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's really beautiful because it also takes. A bit of the sharpness and the edge off, and then you know, of course, in the DI, I add some film grain and really, uh, you know, the saturation, the contrast would really match the, the, the Kodak film's dark look. And uh, uh, it's really when you well, you've seen it on a big screen, um, mm -hmm. but it, it really feels uh, very cinematic and not like a, a digital camera because often. I mean, the DI, and then they put up a leader or something. I see some other footage of some other uh, project, and I go, oh, wow, like that looks so clean and textureless. And, you know, so it's something with Skip Kimball and my colors that we've also perfected because on Monuments Man, I, I actually shot film and digital and mixed it. So, and then we, we really found a way to, uh, you know, blend the two. Um, by creating a film look for the digital footage. And, and on Nebraska, which he did as well, I mean, I had to shoot Alexa. Mm -hmm. uh, I had tested black and white film stock, and I said, well, match it to that. And we also projected Paper Moon uh, back then and to see really, like, how we're live and how the grain and the film projection really, like, we, we've forgotten, you know, like, my kids who are 11, they've never seen the film projection. So... Um, you know, so I, I didn't want to overdo it, but I think we've uh, really created a, a nice effect. And uh, um, I remember Haskell Wexler, uh, who has two Academy Awards for Black and White, mm -hmm. uh, call, called me back then and said, oh, Faden, you know, I just saw that Nebraska thing. Like, what film stock did you use on that? You know, so that was the ultimate compliment, of course. Coming from Haskell, I would say yeah. you can't do any better than that. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, and it's actually funny. Coincidentally, uh, just was watching uh, Medium Cool, you know, as a, as a references and and for background and uh, all, I mean, he just shot, you know, he, we just shot exactly, recreated exactly that, all all the, you know, um, Rand Park and all the hippies there and and yippies and trying to go to the convention and you know so a lot of that uh footage was matched to to haskell's work yeah. mm -hmm. you know what what is the most gratifying aspect for you of cinematography you are such a storyteller with your imagery fade on um i think this this film truly truly is one of uh, one of the best i have seen from you or anyone else but i'm curious what is the most gratifying thing of, about being a cinematographer for you well the reason i got into it initially uh, has held up over the 45 films i've done that you know you are presented with a different story and different actors and different 
environment and different locations. And so it's never routine. I try not to fall back to certain, uh, uh, you know, uh, schemes mm -hmm. that I, I reapply. I mean, I, I approach every film completely different, like on this one that I'm doing now. It's a lot of handheld work, which I typically don't do. I'm more like classic composition guy because I come from still photography and painting. So to me, it's all about the frame and the composition. But, you know, just that you can apply a different visual look to each story is, is what makes keeps this job you know, fascinating and uh, and of course different directors and uh, different actors. But uh, yeah, it's and I, I really pride myself. And if you see my films, I mean, you can't go, oh yeah, that's Faden shot that. Like with some DPs, I know are excellent, but they do have a very strong handwriting on it. Mm -hmm. And with me, I mean, like Mouse Hunt looks completely different than Million Dollar Tell than Sideways than. Uh, weatherman and you know they all feel uh, very different and I always also pride myself that ultimately it's 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 I'm, I'm telling the story for the director so I don't really force something onto them that they are that's not their own and uh, with Mangold luckily we have very similar sensibilities and taste and you know I compose something and I talk to my on the little HME headsets that I wear, I go pan left, tilt down, yeah. boom, boom down a couple inches. And he doesn't even hear me say that because he's not on that system. And he will say, in sync, you know, boom down, pan a little left. And I mean, we were just like scary almost how we, you know, so it's of course helpful when you work with somebody who has similar visual mm -hmm. sensibilities. But, but, you know, like right now I'm working with Aaron Sorkin, he's more a writer and a play director. so. I'm very much in in control of the blocking and all the shot design and all the lensing. But I am also doing it with keeping in mind what he wants, even if he can't articulate it in, in a technical way. So uh, that's always uh, a nice challenge, you know, to, to, to give them what they imagine and get it as close to that as possible. Um, whether they can, you know, tell me how to do it or not. So. And that was 90% of my exclusive interview with cinematographer Fadon Papa Michael talking about Ford versus Ferrari. The only part you missed is where he talks about George Clooney and all the Nespresso commercials that are out there. Faye Don is the cinematographer on all of them. But all of that will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net this week. Well, right now we're going to switch gears and we're going to go back to the Old West, the New West. And I'm very excited to welcome Graham Phillips and Parker Phillips. Are you there, guys? We are. Thanks for having us. Ah. I am so thrilled to have you guys. Um, before we get into the bygone, congratulations, Graham. Lovely job. It seems that every teen and tween in America is crazy about you as Prince Eric. <laughs> well, thank you. My, I have an eight-year-old niece, and she uh, I'm definitely the cool uncle now. Oh, uh, well, you can't get when you're the cool uncle or a cool aunt. That, that says it all. That's, you know, that's the only audience. Um, I've got to ask you, how nerve-wracking was that doing that live performance for global television? Um, 
Well, I tried not to think about things like global television. Um, I, tried, you know, I just sort of put it out of my mind. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, since there's only one show, I, I didn't rob myself of enjoying it. So, um, you know, it was obviously a little nerve-wracking when I was swinging in and on the rope. And I was like, it all kind of hit me right then. <laughs> I swung on stage. I was like, oh, crap. It's a lot of eyeballs. But, um, you know, I ended up having a good time, and I was happy with how it went. And this that it was a very unique undertaking, blending film with live action in a live performance. Um, you know, that's something that we don't see. Um, and I know. I mean, I mean, look, it was a it was a really interesting idea. I thought um, I think it's really difficult to execute something that hasn't been done before, no matter what it is. But when there's so many technical elements, um, you know, I'm always impressed by people that can pull it off. Uh, so I was just, I was really proud of the whole team. You know, it's, uh, it's, I thought that they did a really good job for what it was. I mean, I was, I was pretty impressed that they pulled it all together in such a short period of time. And, um, you know, it was, it was fun for me just as a, a recovering gearhead and, you know, <laughs> like technocrat. I just, I loved seeing all the, all the different crafts that they were doing. It was pretty awesome. And, of course, now you are a member of the Disney family, and you will forever now have on your resume, I was Prince Eric. <laughs> exactly. A little bit different from the bygone, but definitely uh, uh, definitely entertaining all the same. <laughs> but I've got to tell you, it showed, looking at the bygone, after your performance as Prince Eric on Little Mermaid Live, it shows your range and diversity as an actor. And I've got to tell both of you, from a filmmaking standpoint, the bygone is impeccable. Your cinematography, the work that you did with your DP, with David Merrick, your cinematography is stunning. But even your, your pacing, um, your editing, so well done. But it all starts with the bygone. It truly does start with story and melding the the new, quote-unquote, West with the old West, but also showing us the lawlessness that still remains, no matter how, things cha- how much things change, they stay the same. And this is like a whole new Wild West uh, that you show us here. So I'm curious... Where did the idea come from for this particular story? Um, well, well, thank you. You really hit the, a lot of the central themes on the head, so that's always nice. Um, you know, it, it was uh, we, we wanted to do a Western. We wanted to do a modern-day Western. We wanted to do one that felt, um, you know, like it was an ode to the old Westerns, but also was a little bit maybe more authentic or truthful. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a U.S. history major, and I was starting to work on my thesis, and Parker found found this article that was talking about all the trafficking going on in Native communities, um, particularly up in North Dakota, because it was during the height of the oil boom, because of all the fracking and everything. And... um, and he sent it over to me, and it was shocking because, I, you know, you're reading these statistics that are really sobering about how, you know, marginalized Native American groups are and how law enforcement's totally failed them. And, you know, as we know, the government's failed them so many times over and over. And 
I was looking at it kind of from the historical perspective of, you know, well, this is exactly what went down in the gold rush. It's the same. It's the same thing all over mm-hmm. again. You know, natural resource extraction bringing this flood of men to these areas where there's not enough law enforcement. These sort of, you know, where these wild west um, circumstances just pop up, and uh, and once again, it's native people. Um, that are getting really the brunt end of that. Um, but also, for the first time, um, you know, there's also this, this idea that the rancher and the cowboy is being um, encroached upon as well. And so there's this sort of, um, you know, this idea that the cowboy and the Indian state is tied as they confront, you know, industry and modernity. Um, and so that was just really compelling to us. It seemed like a good, a good, um, world to the really descend into the modern day western mm-hmm. and and you mentioned that that the fate of the cowboys and the indians their fate really is tied and we're seeing that in television play out in yellowstone uh in the series of yellowstone where uh, you know the indians and and modern day you know the kevin costner cowboy rancher they have to come together for common purposes at some point uh and we see that really play out beautifully in the bygone you know how was your process because your co-writers co-directors how did you break down the development of this did you sit in a room together did you throw stuff at each other uh did you just email each other as you were writing uh and planning i'm curious how this collaboration uh took place well this is parker by the way we sound the same so it's a little difficult to tell us apart but um <laughs> we uh we live together so uh you know we're always up in each other's grills um and yeah we just you know the entire process took us a couple of years and we just kind of had to duke it out and at first we were hoping we could find someone to write the screenplay for us but um when that person did not appear, uh, we realized we had to do it ourselves. And because of that, you know, we kind of taught ourselves the medium. Um, and it was great, you know, because when you're on set and half of the directing duo is in front of the camera and the other half is behind it, um, you really have to make sure you're on the same page as each other um, because there's not really enough time for uh, Graham to be running back and forth or me to be running in front of the camera to, you know, discuss. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, we were always on the same page. But, you know, we've kind of been on the same page our entire life. So uh, we're very lucky to work together. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you go about designing your visual structure of this? Because this is very specifically designed. You've got some great action sequences in there of varying types. Um, But your visual design is absolutely stunning. And that piggybacks on your production design. Um, Taking a look at Kip's house and that of of his father of Hadley, and then contrasting that with Beckett's house, production design is gorgeous, showing us the two different ways of life. And then, of course, you have the actual oil. You've actually got the rigging outfits happening, and that with all the piping and everything, which you use to great, great. Uh, divine visual effect, uh, shooting, the, taking the camera and shooting it through all those stacks of pipeline. So I'm, so I'm curious how you develop this entire visual, tonal bandwidth and construct 
uh, both from a design standpoint and then lensing it? Well, you know, part of it was obviously what was just um, out there already. You know, we did some pretty extensive scouting, both in North Dakota and in Oklahoma, where we shot. And, you know, you, the more time that we, we spent with um, David Myrick and each other um, just taking photos of everything, you know, there's certain elements that stick in your memory. And, uh, oh, that's so funny. I'm getting a call from David Myrick right as I said his name. So sorry. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, photographs and you, as they go deeper and deeper in your memory, you know, you sort of, the more time that elapses, you, you sort of think more about, the things that stood out as poetic and for some Mm -hmm. reason, you know, certain things just really grip you. Like for us, um, certain things that maybe seemed like they're very problematic. We ended up using them as solutions like the, uh, the pipe field. Um, you know, we, it was sort of in the way (laughs) where we wanted to shoot this and (laughs) we were far away from it. Uh, And it was just in the background. We're like, how are we going to shoot around this ugly mound? We want to, give the idea that we're in the middle of nowhere, that no one can come and sort of save the sheriff. You know, there's no one else that's going to come and help. And then we realized, well, why don't we go see what that thing is? And we got in there and we're like, oh, my God, it's a labyrinth of pipes. This is mm-hmm. unbelievable. It's the same idea that no one can come and help you, but not from a vast perspective, but rather from you're caged in and no one can see you. And so we ended up moving all of those trailers um, about a quarter mile and have these these trucks just bring them and plop them down the pipes so that way we could film you'd have enough time to make our day so it ended up becoming one of our favorite you know parts of the whole film just because you know we ended up um just falling in love with those pipes and you mentioned the summer ranch house uh Mm -hmm. similarly there was an issue we had with um all these wind farms you know all around all the windmills um, we're like, oh God, like, how are we going to remove these all in post? <laughs> we're like, what are we doing? Like the whole, one of the central, uh, you know, themes of this is the encroachment of like all these oil rigs and the landscape being on fire. What a nice contrast that like, you know, you go to the, the land of uncle Beckett, you know, the oil man, and he's surrounded by all the fire. And then you go to summer ranch and there's this sort of spirit of the wind that, mm-hmm. um, you know, came to kind of represent the sort of new energy and like, yeah, things will never be the same, but there's still like a place for, you know, doing what's right. And like the kind of spirit of the mother, um, when you see the, the windmills in the background mm-hmm. and the graves in the foreground, um, they kind of look eerily similar. And, um, so certain things just worked out, you know, just because, you know, you, you realize that certain problems become solutions, I guess. You know, and even going down to the 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 smaller the set dress elements of your production design, very very telling in Beckett's home versus uh, you know Hadley's home, and you see their perspectives on life reflected in the interior of the homes and what is in them. You've got a great line in there um, where Kip's it where. The character of Kip says at one point, you can tell a lot of man about a man by the books on his shelf. And that applies to this entire film. When you look at the elements for each individual character, what defines them? And you really follow that through so beautifully. Um, you left no stone unturned. And then you really get into history uh, when you go down into the mine shaft uh, and that you just explode in that third act 
with your color changes, going with the more sepia that makes us feel like we're back in the days of Custer, we're back in the days of the gold rush, and you really just hammer it home there so quietly, but so strongly. Um, you know, what kind of challenges did that present for you in with the visual tone? Because your colors change throughout the film as we move through the storyline, but everything is still very cohesive, but very specifically telling for time and place. Was that a big challenge for you to get that cohesiveness yet distinction? Um, well, thank you for the compliments, first of all. Um, uh, you're a very keen observer, and Graham and I spent a lot of time, you know, working on that uh, set design with our production designer and his amazing team. Um, and, yeah, I think that, you know, the, how, we, how we decorated the homes and the desk at Beckett and what he chooses to, you know, show his guests. Uh, is very telling of the person. Um, as far as the end of the movie, yeah, we shot the end in this place called Alabaster Caverns. Uh, the script called for a abandoned mine, and um, you know, in Oklahoma, there's not all there's there's no mines, and it's really hard to find anything underground. <laughs> so we ended up finding something near the Kansas border, and we moved production there on our last week. And uh, the one rule was we couldn't wake up the bats. There was about two thousand oh. bats in this and uh of course we used you know some firearms inside and as you might have you know predicted the bats woke up so um when you watch the film you will see some bats flying around and they made for uh definitely some fun days and nights on set uh but yeah i mean as, as far as your question you know the script you know if you picked up the script you read the last 30 pages um it always we always wanted it to seem like a period western. We wanted mm-hmm. all these archetypes to be stripped down to kind of their basic selves and um, you know their bygone self, I should say. And uh, and yeah, and that's you know that's what we were really trying to achieve inside the mine. Um, there's not really there's nothing um, that hints at modernity when you watch uh, the last act of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the way we colored it, we even used a different grain type for the end of the film, a grain that, you know, was only used in, you know, the old Westerns. Um, And so we really wanted to create a new look. And uh, I'm happy you, you, you noticed that. Oh, I think it is. That third act is stunning. When we are in the mine, it is stunning. And you feel transported. We also get to see how much of a nut job Uncle Beckett really is. Um. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which you know and you you give you allude to that as we go once we meet uncle beckett um wearing his blue tinted sunglasses um because every time you see something like that you think vintage you think about a doc holiday um you even think about um you've got to think about Gary Oldman's character of Dracula during the 1800s wearing those kind of glasses. Um, so You know what's funny is, uh, I just pulled up the email now. So Richie Coster, uh, who I think is a fantastic actor, and he, he just absolutely gave himself to the role. Uh-huh. A very brave performance. Um, we were, were so honored that he came on board. What's funny is um, the spectacles was actually completely his idea. So we, you know, we had sent him a long letter sort of outlining 
his psychosis and sort of what he represents in this, um, what we sort of referred to as a dark colonial fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sent this email, and he, and we hadn't even met the guy, and he just subject line, spectacles? He goes, gentlemen, wondering if you had any thoughts on the spectacles. In my idleness, I had reached a perhaps overly poetic justification for them. Beckett, yes, I love that name, refuses to see the people and the land as they are. He sees them through the prism of his own dominance and ambition, through the blue color of his steel and oil. Lyrical, no? I'm going to go ahead and order them, so he'll have time to reach me before I ship out to Oklahoma. So he even ordered his own it just showed up with them. We're like, we love it. <laughs> They're per and it's perfect for the character and for the film as a whole. It adds so much. And then as you see the film play out, you really I mean, anytime I see those kind of spectacles on someone, okay, something is afoot somewhere. Something is afoot revolving this person. That uh, you know, there are issues or they have issues. <laughs> Um, and it just works so well. Um, I just love it. And I think that's great that, uh, Richie, you know, that was one of his immediate thoughts on the character. Um, you, you cast so well with this film, guys. Forget the fact that, you know, Graham, you're starring in it, you know. Um, everybody else is really good. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you're, you're excellent, (laughs) Graham, as Kip. You really bring us into his innocence and his naivete of the world. Um, Kip is who I think so many people, when they think of a Western, when they think of the Old West, and they think of, you know, it's riding horses and being on ranches and open spaces, and you don't think about the nasty stuff. And when we meet Kip initially, that's who he is. He is the purity of what the West, of, of our rose-colored view of the Old West. And we slowly see that change. But you have, your emotional shifts in here, Graham, are so beautifully done. When you're interacting with Jamie, uh, who plays your father, Hadley, and I, I'll see Jamie in anything, um, He's such an incredible actor. We know all know him best for TV. Um, but he's amazing. And your chemistry with him is fabulous. Similarly, you and Sidney Schaefer are just, you just feed off of each other. And there again, it's the innocence and the purity that re- you really bring into Kip. And I love that about this character. Well, thank you. You know, we had to cut a couple scenes, um, particularly with, uh, with Hadley, just because we, we had to rearrange certain things for different reasons, um, which obviously becomes difficult with maintaining the integrity of the transitions that you, uh, mm-hmm. you plan for when you have to, you know, move those things around. But what we realized is we're like, you know, there's only two scenes between Kip and his dad, and, um, and you don't really notice that, which I think is a good a good sign, but, um, you know, it's, it definitely helped to have Jamie on set because he's just so, you realize that these two guys are absolutely broken and, uh, you know, it's in a genre where the men don't get broken. And right. So it's, it's sort of, it's just tragic to see that. You're just like, man, like, 
you know, you you want you're waiting for the archetype of the, you know, the undeterred, you know, guy that's just gonna he's gonna go through with steely eyes and, um, you know, he's unbreakable. And what you kind of you start to realize is that um, that's not not natural and um and it, it sort of represents a different part of of america you know mm-hmm. like yes there's that rugged individualism but oftentimes that, that gets turned into something that more closely aligns with greed than um someone that is you know a listener and a giver mm-hmm. um so yeah it's interesting that uh, jamie did such a good job with that yeah i mean there's a great vulnerability that both Jamie and you, Graham, bring to your characters. Uh, and, as you, and as you guys have said, this is not what we see or are used to seeing when you think of, be it the Old West or the Modern West. And it really humanizes and makes it very um, connective, very resonant for people to, uh, to latch on to. It's like we're we're traveling in time to a time and place that we look for, that we reminisce about, that, you know, we have cinematic memories about. But there's something resonant and palpable about these characters and their vulnerability and their pain that we can that we can connect with. And I really love that in your character structures. We see that with uh, Sydney's character of Wanya, uh, and we see it primarily in Kip and Hadley as well. And I just really think you did a great job with that. Well, thank you. You know, you mentioned Yellowstone. I think someone else who did a great job in the film, is, you know, it, he, um, you know, he wasn't in it as much as we would have liked just in the final cut, but because, um, you know, you never know how long these things are going to get. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. keep the pacing. But Tokala Blackout, who, who's great in Yellowstone, that scene between him and Kip yep. where he really drives home, you know, the central messaging of, of, um, you know, Kip's desperation and this, like, this feeling of hopelessness and like, how do you, how do you move on when you feel like even your identity is being taken from you as your land's being taken from you and having someone who, you know, has obviously had to deal with that on a personal level mm-hmm. and who's, you know, his great grandfather is, um, Black Elk, who, you know, he sort of brought about this, a lot of the spiritual revitalization, um, you know, near the, the turn of the century for mm-hmm. the Lakota people. And it's like, you know, so for someone who has that in his blood, as Tokala does, to talk through this, you know, this young cowboy who's going through something that, you know, Native folks have been going through for centuries, it was, it was really it was really special for us just to be a part of that, honestly. Yeah, I, you guys, have, you've nailed this on every level. And before we run out of time on the show, I've got an, another level that you really hit is your score. Brad Smith and the score. What were your thoughts in working with Brad as to what you were looking for with the score? Because there are moments where we get musicality and instrumentation that harkens to the Lakota and the Native American culture. And we get a little bit of uh, some thriller-esque notes in there at at certain moments. So I'm curious what you were looking for in a score and that Brad brought for you. 
Well, you know, um, you're totally right. Brad absolutely killed it on this one. And, you know, he hadn't done a narrative feature before, which I certainly would not have guessed um, had I not known that. Um, he just seems like such a veteran already. And, you know, he's such a talented musician. It, it makes sense. But, you know, there's a difference between being a talented musician and understanding how to marry sound and image to mm-hmm. get emotional results. And he just he just knows how to do that. Um you know, the first thing we started out with was we wanted a theme the same way that, you know, the Searchers has a theme and, you know, all of these iconic Westerns have um, the theme of their hero. Um, but starting out at a place where the hero is so broken, we wanted a theme that felt like it was hearkening back to the, you know, the heyday of the Western, mm-hmm. um, where there was no doubt that the hero would prevail. You know, because you watch those westerns and you eat them right up, but yep. no part of you doubts that the hero is going to be able to, you know, make it all happen by the end and come out on top. Um, but this is in this story, you're not so certain that that's going to happen. Um, it's a different kind of western. It's, it's trying to turn that stereotype of, you know, certain victory on its head. And so we wanted that theme to sort of, while it harkened back to the. Mm-hmm the very mighty, you know, victory of certain themes, we wanted it to sound like decades uh, of decay had sort of made it like it's just a whisper in the wind. Like, it's, you know, it's trying to be that. It's trying to, the spirit is trying to find its way back to mm-hmm. that. But it's so lost and broken now, the same way that, you know, Kip is after the loss of his mother. Um, and so when he played us that theme that he had just, the simple violin and the cello mm-hmm. and piano. I mean, it just felt it felt so right. And, yeah. Um, you know, he just built built from there with uh, different elements of, you know, like you said, um, native sounds with uh, industrial sounds. We wanted that clash mm-hmm. of industry and um, our history to to really be prevalent throughout the whole thing. Mm. Well, unfortunately, guys, we are out of time for today. I love talking to the two of you, and I love this film. The Bygone, everyone can see tomorrow. What digitally, what digital platforms does the film come out on tomorrow? Well, it's uh, iTunes, Amazon Prime, DirecTV, Cox has it, and uh, I know there's a lot more, but definitely iTunes and Amazon Prime can go, and you can pre-order it today or buy it tomorrow and check it out. Well, I, I can't encourage everybody enough to... Check out The Bygone. Now, do you two have any other films in the works? Because I want to see more from the two of you. Yeah, we have a really exciting film we're working on uh, right now. It's based on a novel called The Fighter by Michael Sarah Smith, an incredible book if you're looking for a, a new read. Um, and we are. the film is called Rumble Through the Dark. It's uh, about this bare-knuckle, illegal um, cage fighter in Mississippi who's over the hill, he's dealing with amnesia and a lot of physical pain, and he's trying to battle his way out of debt. And it's just the characters are just phenomenal. We can't wait. We're doing it in April. Uh, Graham, will you be playing the fighter in this one? <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think I can be aged up that much. So I'll just be sitting in the director's chair with the bro. That would be the entire budget to age you up that much. I know. We'll talk to Scorsese about doing the opposite of what he's doing. (laughs) Well, guys, I can't thank you enough. You've got to come back on the show again sometime. You are just, 
you're both such a, a pure delight and so such talented filmmakers. I just can't wait to see your next one. Thank you so much. We can't wait to talk to you soon. Thank uh, you. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Graham Phillips and Parker Phillips, uh, co-writers, co-directors. Graham is also the star of The Bygone, uh, a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, visually, emotionally, tonally, see it. Uh, it's available tomorrow. And Ford versus Ferrari in theaters on Friday. Oh, my God. You have to see that one. Uh, big screen is the only way to see Ford versus Ferrari. And that one is it. It's definitely in my top 10, if not my top five for the year. Well, that is all the time we have today. We'll be back next week with a jam-packed show already. Uh, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.